Welcome to Are We There Yet? Transport into the Future. This is a series of programs that look at current issues and developments and what they mean for the transport we need, we want and what we can supply in the future. These programs are written and presented by David Brown. Everyone seems to have an opinion about public transport fares. Most think they should be lower and some even suggest they should be free. But does it matter that much? And what are the consequences of different prices, not just in the short term, such as who decides to get a bus or a train rather than use their car, but also in the long term, which includes where we choose to live and work and the resultant impact on the shape of the city that develops? Professor Corin Mully is the founding chair in public transport at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney. She's an absolute whiz at this sort of thing. Or, to put it more formally, she led, for example, a high-profile European and UK consortia undertaking benchmarking in urban public transport and has provided both practical and strategic advice to local and national governments. Now, she has written many technical papers and presented at high-powered forums, but I like how she has a heart for all the people we are trying to serve and the practical realities under which they have to manage their lives. She has also done a lot of work in the history of transport, which I love. We must talk about that at a later date. But down to the detail. I asked her about public transport fare price elasticity. That is, if you vary the price, does it affect travel behaviour? Clearly, as part of the price, because we talk in transport as price being a combination of time and money, the fare is clearly an influence. It's typically said, although I haven't seen the evidence for Sydney, that train travellers are more inelastic in their demand than bus travellers. And that's typically because commuters tend to use trains rather than buses. That's certainly true in cities like London. And so they're less price sensitive, whereas bus users are typically more price sensitive. You tend to be locked into the train, both in sense of what your options are, but also your flexibility and your and your being used to the system and being comfortable with it? It's partly that, and I think it's partly that, and it's not so true for Sydney because there are big areas of Sydney that don't have access to train. It's mainly, I think, that commuters spread themselves out along train lines, much more so than along bus lines, which tend to move when they're not fixed in their infrastructure. You can adapt the system to the demand in a bus because you can, they can go on different roads. That's right. So once you've built your rail line or your light rail, you're limited in what you can do. You can change the frequency, you can change the stopping pattern, but you can't change where it goes. And that's why I've been on um, record in Sydney for saying it's really important that you look at where people are and where they want to go and how many of them there are before you decide on mode. Only that way do you get the right mode for the volumes that you're looking at. You know, not only now, but also into the future and what you're expecting to do. So that may be one of the good reasons for building the Northwest Rail Line is that you want to serve that area which is growing if that's your one of your motivations, one would perhaps argue that you should have started a few years ago because the northwest growth area is completely different now than it was five years ago. 
And probably more importantly than that, the people that have moved in in the last five years have got a car dependency, which they wouldn't have had if the public transport had been there first. Yes, so that if you built the transport first, you have a chance of letting this, the area develop around the system so that they can use it well rather than trying to put it in after and have people adapt. That's right. I don't know. Do you know Breakfast Point? Down on the water there? On the water, yes. I think that that is one of the, the nicest planned designs that I've ever seen. And yet when it was first built, nice wide roads, but the public transport ran around the edge and the public transport was only every, every half hour. So, you know, the adverts might just as well have said, come and live here, but remember, you need to bring a car with you. And once people have moved in with their cars, it's very difficult to get them out of them. The idea that you can build one system and hope that it will serve a, an area that has developed up around the car is very limited. Well, it takes a lot of effort. And so, in the sense, that relates to your question is, is the fare very high in Australia? If we think about Sydney, which, because all the states are quite different, I would say that in Sydney, the actual cost of a typical journey is low because the fare system is almost flat. And I mean, this is going to change if and when the iPart recommendations come into play. But at the moment, you know, you can travel by, by bus from Palm Beach to Wollongong for the same fare as you can travel by bus from Mosman into the CBD, because once you've travelled five or six kilometres, I think it is, the fare doesn't go up. And the same is true for train, although I think the threshold is higher. And what that means is that people, given that time and money is what determines people's behaviour on public transport, it means that people are substituting time for money and living further out in order to get more space because land is cheaper further out and that's why we're getting sprawl or that's why we've had sprawl because people are moving further out and it's not costing them a lot more in terms of money even though it's costing them in time. Yes, I've often thought people have said, oh, you should make public transport free but that would make for a lot of real estate agents selling properties you know, 100 kilometres out and saying, but mate, it won't cost you anything to travel into the city. Well, it does cost you something. It costs you the time. Time, yes. Although, interestingly, time on public transport with modern digital communications, social communications, it's still relevant, but people can at least be involved, if not distracted, while they're doing it. It doesn't take it away completely, but it does mean you can be a little bit more active. I certainly find my travelling on public transport is actually quite a constructive time now. Well, that's good. I mean, I think that Wi-Fi signals still not Wi-Fi, but your you know, phone signals quite often drop out on some of these trips. But that aside, yes, you can be more productive. And actually, that's an interesting fact, because what that means is that the value of time that we're associating with projects is probably too high. You know, if people can actually work whilst they travel to work, then the value of travel time savings that comes out that we use to evaluate new projects should be lower than what we're using at the moment. 
because that, to a degree, obviously is one of the great concerns about autonomous vehicles, that individually, that the cost of being in congestion is reduced because I can do something else. That's right. And what I, I mean, what I'm more concerned about in terms of autonomous vehicles is how do we get over the cultural hump that people can't end up owning autonomous vehicles in the same way as they own a private car at the moment. Otherwise, what's going to happen when you get to work and you dismiss your car? Where is it going to go? Is it going to carry on travelling around the streets whilst you're at work, adding to the traffic? Is it going to go and park somewhere? What is this vehicle going to do? The amount of dead running that could be done by autonomous vehicles could increase the load on the system enormously. That's right, and make it more congested rather than less congested. I have a great concern too about the short trip that quite often we talk only in terms of relatively long trips, but there are a lot of short trips being made. And I think uh, from your point of view, you might say on buses as well, that uh, they're not necessarily the huge long just for the commute. And if we have autonomous vehicles, what it might do to that is a whole issue, but certainly one that I would think to be concerned about. Yes, I mean, I'm rather hoping that Australia will embrace the ideas of, Europe in terms of mobility as a service, which makes such a good sense. You know, we talk about travelling by car where ownership is in many ways intrinsic to what we're doing, but the idea of mobility as a service is separate from ownership, that, you know, like your telecoms and your, your mobile phone, what you actually are demanding is mobility. So if we can develop mobility packages which have maybe a public transport element, a taxi element, a hire car element, that people will buy those mobility packages in much the same way as you buy your mobile phone package. You know, you buy a bigger package of taxis if you like taking taxis, and you buy a package that gives it to you within 15 minutes if you're time pressured, but maybe by booking the day before if you're not time pressured, and all those things affect the price. And I think moving towards something like that, at least for some of the population, could change the ownership structure and put us in place for when autonomous vehicles come. And then the role of autonomous vehicles in some places, not everywhere, but in some places, could be providing that access from where you live to your nearest public transport point. The other thing about that is that you are much more conscious of the price of doing it, which with a car at the moment tends to be buried and I've always said when I was young, if you wanted to go down the shops, you went down, you came back. If you forgot something, you went down again. Whereas if you thought about it a bit, you would reduce the amount of travel you needed to do. And you might more think about it if you have to pay for it more directly. I think that's true. But I think actually if you buy a package, it may not affect you quite as strongly. I mean, for example, when you decide to phone someone on your mobile phone, do you think about how many minutes you're using up of your monthly package. Yes. I don't think people do really. It just hits them when the message comes, you've used 99% and you're going to have to start paying. That's when they start thinking about it. I understand that, but I guess then package, that might be a limitation of the package. I guess it gets to the point then of what would happen, do you think, not just in terms of here I am in my existing situation, how that might change, but how the shape of the city might change. For example, you said if 
we had a better fare structure, we might not sprawl as much. Is that the biggest impact that you think we can get from a different pricing system? Certainly the pricing system can affect where people decide to live and how they travel. It doesn't happen quickly because the decision about where to live is typically a long-term decision, whereas how you travel is much more of a short-term decision. So it's likely to take time to make an effect. I mean, one of the examples I give is in London and the congestion tax. When it was first introduced, environmentally friendly cars were excluded from the charge. And at the time, it didn't make a big difference. But over time, as people made their decision to invest in their next new car, they went to environmentally friendly cars rather than ones which paid the congestion tax. So over a period of years, you began to get congestion back in London, but congestion by environmentally friendly cars. So you do need to take account of the duration over which people make their decisions. But in principle, if you have a fare system which more realistically relates to the distances that people travel, then you start making people decide and behave in relation to the combination of money and time rather than just one of them, i.e. time. On the other hand, for Sydney, that's really tricky because the historical policy of having much cheaper fares for long distance as opposed to short distances means that a lot of people have moved further out. And in practice, those tend to be the people with lower average incomes. And so putting up fares can be very regressive. So in a sense, we're almost locked into a system that we already have. And my policy advice, which actually IPART is following, is that you need to make a decision to redress that balance over a very long period so that people can change their location decisions in relation to the fares as they change. Is there a possibility of doing it like a carbon tax where you bring in a new number but then you, as it were, compensate people? So the point is that in theory, in their short term, they're not disadvantaged, but they still have a choice of, for example, using power less or, or using situations, but they don't have the short-term money loss that makes it a very politically difficult policy to bring in? Well, compensation in terms of individuals is only really easy when you have a feature of that individual which is not transferable. For example, you can give compensation to older people because you can determine them on their age. You can give compensation to people on their income because they can define their income. But you need to have something which is definable. Otherwise, it's to everyone and you're back to where you start. One of the issues for the, for the state government is that actually moving towards what is a better, fair structure is expensive. I mean, one of the examples going back all 20, 30 years in London was that London had the same sort of horrendously complicated fair structure that Sydney used to have. And Ken Livingstone came in with a promise to make free fares. And he came in and slashed the fares and created the zonal system which London has now and which everyone likes. And then the local authorities around London took Ken Livingstone to court and said, you know, you're expecting us to pay for that. We don't think it's right. And it went all the way through the courts of the land. 
And in the end, the House of Lords turned around to Ken Livingstone and said, you can't operate a business like that, put the fares up. So Ken Livingstone had a double whammy. He got all the, all the benefits of reducing the fares, the benefits of creating a zonal system which would otherwise have created winners and losers, and none of the criticism for raising the fares because he was told to. And, you know, if you look at Sydney, it was horrendously complicated before the MyZone fares came in. And there was absolutely no way that a zonal system could have been created that was intermodal and um, more directed without creating huge numbers of winners and losers. And so, in a sense, it's not that you're stuck with it, but you have to recognize that it's a long-term change which has to have a political and policy commitment. A fair structure can be as complicated as you like. You mentioned, for example, giving elderly people a, a discount or where it can be flat or zonal or graduated. With modern technology, you can make it almost as complicated as you like. Has it got to be simple to send a message? I think that fair structures need to be understandable, but also the other issue which us as travellers never think about is that there has to be some sort of revenue-raising aspect of it in order to underpin the costs of the system. And that's why, in terms of setting a fair structure, there are these conflicting demands. So, you know, passengers like simple zonal fare system, but those would need to be quite high if they were going to meet the revenue expectations of the current system. And some people would be better off and some people would be worse off. And politically, that's very difficult to implement. Although the city of Freiburg, I think, had a whole pile of environmental travel cards. It even had things like transferability across friends and family. Among other things, the fair structure could be a way of embracing people where they're at and bringing it in as a more regular part of their lifestyle than we've had in the past. Oh, indeed, that's absolutely true. And, you know, your Opal card could be flagged to deliver a certain fare because you're a certain type of person. That's certainly technically feasible, but one would need to look at the revenue implications of that because the state actually needs at least as much revenue as it's getting now, and preferably more if we're going to move towards the new systems that we've seen begun and I think are really exciting in terms of increasing accessibility for Sydney. I love my Opal card for it. It is what you said earlier, a bit of a package. I don't have to think about it. I can just get on there. I don't have to go for change. It it just means I've bought mobility, which is very, very easy to cash in, to use. One part of mobility as a service might be that Opal becomes your ticket. So, you know, you get into a taxi and you go in your taxi and you swipe your Opal card and the money gets deducted. Wouldn't that be great? That sort of usability as well as usability in terms of telling me what sort of services are available. In my old day, a bus timetable was something that was kept in the kitchen drawer that was out of date, impossible to read, incomprehensibly small print. Now with maps and that, I find my mobility... And I don't do a lot of regular commutes. I do a lot of sort of different sorts of trips is is absolutely fantastic. Do you think that is also part of a shaping the city the way we want it to be? Well, certainly, I think the more 
you make it easy for people to access the system, the more likely you are to get use. And New South Wales has invested huge sums in providing information to actual and potential travellers to make it easy. And one of the studies that we're just completing at the moment in terms of the data collection is asking people what different types of information they use at different stages of their journey so that we can see what is being most effective and from a policy point of view underpinning how you might target information to different sectors of the population at different stages in their journey. You know, because what you need when you change a train is different from what you need before you set off. The fact that I can keep the map with me and the information with me is absolutely critical because I might do a trip that has two or three mode changes in it and that used to worry me. It doesn't worry me now because I've got a map that tells me exactly where to walk when I get there. I don't want to have to plan it out all at the beginning and if something changes, it's adaptable as well. But if you're doing that, it's really important that the information is accurate. So, for example, um, a couple of days ago, I set off from where I live in Alexandria to go to Cockatoo Island to see the Biennale. And the 131500 told me to get off at Wynyard and walk down to King Street Wharf. But when I got off at, King, at Wynyard, 131500 didn't know that the exit that it told me to go out of was closed. And so the map that directed me was actually in the wrong direction. That's very unhelpful. If you're going to provide information, it needs to be accurate and up-to-date. Well, at least there's a potential to do that in the old system of the cardboard bus timetable in the, in the back of, you know, in your drawer was always going to be out of date because of things. The thing about this sort of flexibility, do you think that might help us, again, in the shape of the cities, use buses more in a local sense? You said at the very beginning that when we get locked into a commute on a train, for example, there's a certain solidity in that, a regularity that you do. Yet this dynamic availability of public transport is a different thing altogether. And that is something of which a bus system can be more locally focused or more variedly focused or ultimately could change when the demand changes as well. Yes, I think that's right, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, people talk about demand-responsive transport, the transport that you phone up to collect, you know, com that comes to collect you. I think my argument would be that all public transport should be demand-responsive. The problem is that when you have key routes, both train and bus, the, on the key corridors, the people that are on the vehicle have a mixture of journey purposes and that's what fills up the bus. As you get to our less dense areas, people have still got the same demands but there's less of them and they occur throughout the day and that means that any one bus is likely to be lightly loaded. So what you're saying is certainly true but it's very expensive to provide. What I would prefer to see is frequencies being built up for buses along key corridors so that people know that once they get to those key corridors, there's going to be a bus within the next 10 minutes. That leaves quite a lot of people with either further to walk and they may not be able to do that. And that's where the demand responsive, the flexible transport comes in. 
And that's where going to get people from their houses and delivering them to these key corridors, I think, is so important. Too many of our buses in less dense areas carry fresh air. And bus operators are happy to provide them because they're paid by the kilometre. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily good value. And I've done work that looks at how you can change the coverage of public transport. So up in Richmond, Windsor, the study that I did first, it increased the access to public transport from something like 35% to 96% by increasing the frequency of services down to Rouse Hill and taking off all other services and converting them to flexible transport on-demand services. And it seems to me that that's the way you get people out of their cars. You provide a service which they don't have to check the timetable for because they know when they turn up it's going to come. And you provide access to that service if you live too far away, but only when you need it and not all the time so that it's empty. Can I finish just on one comment? Is the point about cost recovery something that we need to be considering very strongly because we often consider the cost to build, but the cost to operate in the long term can be a great drain on the community. Might we have to be considering the public transport systems and the shapes of the city with those long-term costs more in mind than we have in the past? I don't know about more in mind than we have in the past, but currently the cost recovery in Sydney for both rail and bus is lower than in many other cities around the world. And on one level, that's not a problem. On one level, for me, that's a real contribution to people's mobility. On the other hand, the money has to come from somewhere. So if it doesn't come from fares, where does it come from? And raising money to pay for those operational outlays can either come from taxation which is progressive so that people pay in accordance to their income or it can be regressive. And it seems to me that if it's regressive, it's probably better to raise the fares so that everyone pays a little bit more rather than having a, a regressive way of filling the gap. And also I think you know that the political point for me or the policy point for me, isn't it important that people who live in an area decide what services should be provided rather than leave it to the operators to decide where they're going to subsidise services. You know, I would rather be able to elect someone or fire them through the voting if I didn't like what their decisions were rather than have an operator decide which line they're going to subsidise or not. That's a lovely concept. Corin, I appreciate all your thoughts and ideas. Thank you very much for your time. That's okay. And that was Professor Corin Mully, who is the founding chair in public transport at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney. Are we there yet? Transport into the Future is produced by Driven Media. Driven Media specialise in communicating technical and scientific information to professionals and the public and also facilitates planning and behaviour change in groups and organisations. You can send comments or suggestions to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. All the participants have agreed to the recording and distributing of their comments.